Well, here we are in John chapter 20. And Easter is when Jesus rose from the dead. He overcame death. So how do you describe that? I mean, on one level, he was dead, and then he became alive. Now, that's significant in itself. And there are other meanings that go along with this. And that's what we find in John chapter 20, is that Jesus overcomes the separation of death. And he overcomes the direction of our lives. We, we go in one way, our way. And his resurrection changes that so that we go his way. And the most amazing thing, I think, in this chapter that Jesus overcomes by his resurrection is unwillingness, stubbornness, and pride. So I'm reading here in chapter 20, and it says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been taken away from the tomb. Did I say that? Stone. Stone had been taken away from the tomb. Keep an eye on me. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there Yet he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Now, the very beginning of Easter is this incredible grieving and loss of hope 
because the most terrible things have happened in this completely broken world. Jesus has been arrested, he's been tried, condemned, put to death. And we're seeing this chapter largely from Mary's perspective. John and Peter are involved. But she's the one John focuses on coming to the tomb early. And she's devastated still by the death of Jesus. And remember that she had been demon-possessed. She had been a prisoner in her own body, being bullied by seven demons. And Jesus saved her and set her free from these bullies. She got to experience his power and the love of God and she was completely devoted to Jesus. She's the one that took a jar of fabulously expensive perfume and poured it on his head and on his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And then she saw Jesus oppressed by bullies himself and put to death. Now that was devastating. And she's not prepared for what happens when she goes to the tomb early after the day of rest in order to honor the body of Jesus in burial. She and other women had brought um, ointment and spices with which to embalm the body and give it an honorable burial. And she's at a loss to explain why anybody would move the stone, take the body. And she's probably thinking, what further indignity can be done? I thought it was over, and it's not over. What are they doing now? So emotionally, she's wiped out. And she runs to tell Peter and John and they take a look and everything and they believe, but what they believe is that the body is gone. They believe her. They don't believe that he's raised from the dead because it says there in the same verse, they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So all they know is, okay, you're right, the body is gone. But they don't know what to make of it. And they go home. So... Imagine this feeling of being devastated in this broken world. That there is such a thing as corrupt religion that would actually put a good man to death. Or an ineffective government that doesn't seem to know how to do what's good but allows evil to happen. Everything is broken right now. And she's stymied herself. She wanted to do something good. She can't even do that. 
just to help us to feel what's going on. And she's grieving. And she's talking to this guy. She thinks it's the gardener. And that's when everything radically changes. Because in verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Now, what's happening here is that Jesus' resurrection means you can say hello again. Now, Jesus calls Mary's name just like he used to before he died. And she's hearing him say it again. And she realizes it's Jesus. And she says, my great teacher, just like she used to say to him before he died. Now, she never thought she would ever say that again. But she's talking with Jesus again. Without her realizing it, she and Jesus are saying hello. Now, the resurrection is a reunion. Bringing together what is separated by death. And when we lose a person to death, we say, I lost them. They're gone. I'll never see them again. A funeral is how we say goodbye. And I say it that way because that's the way my mother used to say goodbye to me. Being a missionary, I live away. When I would return to Seattle and see my mom, it would be great, a reunion. But at the end of my time, when we're at the airport and I have to go, she would turn to me and she would say, goodbye. And I knew what she meant. She was saying, whatever this hand movement means, <laughs> it means, have a nice life, kid. Because she was figuring she wasn't going to make it till I saw her again. Goodbye. And I said, I love you too, Mom. <laughs> and then we would have a reunion. I'd fly into Seattle again. And she'd say, what do you know, kid? Still around. Hello. And I'd say, hi, Mom. That's kind of the level, but the resurrection takes it to a whole new level where you get to say, hello. Now, you know, we don't look forward in our lives to a big goodbye. We just don't. We are looking forward to an amazing hello. Because we're going to see people that we haven't seen in a long time. And we're separated by death. But we'll get to say hello. Hello.
again. That's what we're looking forward to. We'll get to look at the face of Jesus and say, hello. We will get to look at the face of our parents, family that we've lost, friends that we've lost, and say hello. We'll even get to meet people that we've never met but we've only read about and get to say hello. And we'll know them and they'll know us. And it's like heaven is one big hello. And it never stops. Now that's fabulous. That's what's happening right here is that Jesus is saying to Mary, hello. And she's going, yes, hello. And then this reunion, coming together again in a greater way than ever before, a greater relationship. Jesus says in verse 17, do not cling to me. Now, she couldn't resist. Can you imagine? How could you not just grab him and hold on? So amazing. But he says something really interesting here. He says, go tell my brethren. And Jesus has never called his disciples brethren, ever. He's called them disciples, apostles, slaves, friends. But he's never called them brethren. But he's calling them brethren now. And this becomes the name for a Christian in the book of Acts used over 50 times talking about one another, the brethren. Now, you know, that's not just cute mysticism. It's a real thing. He says, go tell my brothers. He says, I am ascending to my father and your father. So, this is being joined into a greater relationship with God than we have ever known. This is greater than you are my creator and I am your creation. This is way better than you are a righteous holy God and I'm a sinner. That's just before judgment and hell. That's not much of a relationship. But Jesus says, I want you to tell my brothers, I'm going to my father and your father. Now there's a couple of ways that you can be related. One is by birth. So if you're brothers, that means you've got the same father. Now it's a little late for Jesus and the disciples 
to really be related. You sort of have to be born in the same generation. And this is the problem. But it's solved by the resurrection. Being born again. Receiving new life from above. So this is legitimate. They really are brethren. The only other way to become related as brothers is to become adopted. And that's where a father takes a child by choice into a legal relationship. And from here on in, I am your father, kid. And you're my kid. It says in Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So we are both born of him and adopted by him. He really wants us. And again, the Christians can't get over it. They just say brothers. Everybody is brother. And that word is used over 50 times in the book of Acts. And Jesus also says, my God and your God. Again, there's a relationship there that says, God is with me. God is for me. He is mine, just as much as I am his. Never to be divided, separated, at war, conflict, any of that stuff, that's over. And Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, this is so far what we've seen as a result of the resurrection. But then it goes on in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, you don't expect this to be a result of Jesus rising from the dead that he gives you a new direction in life. But up until this point, I've been kind of doing my own thing. And I didn't see anything wrong with that. But this is what the Bible says is the essence of sin is that I do my own thing. In Isaiah 53, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, 
but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. All I have to do to be a sinner is just do my own thing. That doesn't sound earth-shaking, does it? And yet, in so doing, just naturally doing my own thing, I naturally push God away. I end all relationship with God. He's not going to tell me what to do with my life. I'm going to tell me what to do with my life. And if I treat God badly, I'm going to treat everyone around me badly. And that's what God has a problem with. And you can see the result of sin in this broken world. So everybody treats everybody else badly. The commitment in relationship just isn't there. People let down one another, they betray one another, they manipulate and use one another because they're doing their own thing. This is why people in government work the government to benefit themselves. I don't know who, I'm not pointing fingers, I'm just saying whenever they discover somebody who's been benefiting themselves, you go, well, of course, there it was. It was just lying there. So why not help myself? Terrible, broken world, full of people just doing their own thing. And that's enough. Now, Jesus says, you know, enough of that. Now I want you to quit going your own way and I want you to come my way. And you're no longer scattering against me. Now you're going to be gathering with me as sons and daughters. He's sending us out with the same purpose that God the Father sent him out, and that is to seek and to save the lost, to restore others into this same fellowship. And that makes sense, doesn't it? You, you realize how fabulous it is to be brought back into fellowship with God, to have your sins forgiven? How amazing it is that God loves you, and you don't have to be afraid of dying. You don't have to live in this existence wondering when God is going to smite you or fearing that he already has. This is the end. But instead, it's okay between you and God. Now, wouldn't you want this for the people around you? the ones that you can stand and the ones that you can't stand. Wouldn't you want this for them? And this is what Jesus is calling them to do. It is to love the world just like the Father 
loved the world, just like Jesus loved the world. The Father wants to restore many sons, many daughters, because he loves them. And it's right here that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. This means that we are enabled to love the world in the same way as Jesus. Another result of the resurrection and receiving Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. God takes up residence in us. And we get to live and move and breathe in the presence of God. Now, listen, is anybody here kind of nervous that I'm talking about? Yeah, we got to love the world. We got to save the world. Anybody get nervous about that? I get nervous. I go, wait, the whole world? I already have a job. I don't know if I can add another activity to my calendar. I'm, I'm a little booked. And if I have to go out and save the whole world, there's a conflict here. Can I please be excused? Are you sure you want me to do this? And then the next thing you feel like is, okay, I'll do it, but I can't do this. I'm not even qualified. I don't care. Nobody has to raise a hand here. But I know how you feel because I feel the same way. Nobody pays you enough to save the world. It's too big a job. There has to be something motivating you that's greater than your own personal interest. Do you get that? And that tremendous motivating power that brought Jesus off the throne of God to be incarnated as a baby is the love of God. You know, it's not a matter of, I wish I had more strength or ability or intelligence. The real need is love. And love makes up for everything else that we don't have. Now I'm reading the biography right now of an evangelist in the 18th century, a guy named George Whitfield. And the guy was phenomenal. You read the book and you feel like, I'll never do that. I could not live like that. He's so amazing. No PA system. But he'll preach to 20,000 people at a time. He had a voice like an opera singer. 
but not just a voice. He had the ability to hold their attention. And it didn't matter if they were the aristocracy in somebody's drawing room or miners. He was preaching to these miners in, in Wales. And the funniest thing happened, he couldn't explain, but all of a sudden, everybody's got white streaks on their faces. And he realized what was happening was they were all crying. And their tears were making these white stripes on their faces because they were so gripped by his preaching and it was experiencing the love of God. And that's, that's why people turned to Jesus during the 18th century in the 18th century revival. The Wesleys, Whitfield, Howell Harris, Daniel Rowland, other people, they're preaching and this fabulous love of God comes down and everybody goes, ah! And see, that's what we're missing. It's not that I can't do this or I'm not fit for this or please get somebody else. I don't have enough arguments. I don't have the power to arm wrestle people into the kingdom of heaven. Ha! You lost. Now you got to be Christian. It's, it doesn't work like that. It's when people understand the love of God and it reduces them to nothing and they say, okay, I got to have that. I am a sinner and I need the love of God. So, this is why Jesus breathes on them. He says, this is something that will enable you to go to the ends of the earth and endure hardship and persecution for my name's sake. I want you to receive the love of God who is a person. Love is not a thing. The Holy Spirit poured out in our hearts communicates the love of God to us so that we say, anything you want, you can have it. Anywhere you want me to go, I'll go there. Anybody you want me to talk to, I'll do it. Now, you know, people are dying for love. They will not admit it, and they won't express it, but everybody is dying for love. And it's got to be real love. Not, I love you, so I'm going to manipulate you and control your life and degrade you and corrupt you. But it's a real love that says, I care more about you than I care about myself than I care about my own personal comfort. I'm actually looking out for you. And see, that's different. Then there are people who won't receive what you have to say about Jesus. 
they're, they're smart, they're intelligent, so they say, I don't need this. And you, they brush you off and they make you feel dumb and stupid when you tell them about Jesus. There are those. But you know, when you're loving them, you're not so worried about yourself. So you don't feel crushed or rejected or like, they don't like me anymore, you know. I'm going to stop. This is stupid. I don't like doing this. Because you hate rejection. Everybody hates rejection. But guess what? When you're loving people, you're not worried about yourself. And you have the power to love and say, well, I'm really sorry for you. You're missing everything in life. But more often, people will listen because you're loving them. And this is true. If somebody knows that you love them, you can tell them anything and they will receive it, even hard stuff. Just an example of this. Uh, a friend of mine had to explain something difficult to another person and asked me for advice. And I said, make sure that person knows you love them. Because when you do that, then this person will be able to receive from you. And he did that. And this person received from him. Now this could have been a nuclear holocaust. But because it was done in love, there was no catastrophe. There was no fight. And you know, it's amazing. I, I, I have this card. It's back there. It's got John 3.16 on it. And I give it out to people and I just tell them, have you ever read this in your life? And they'll read it and oh, they'll laugh some of them. And they go, I've never read this in my life. I say, see, you have to know that God loves you. This is the whole plot of the Bible in one sentence. This is all that God has to tell you is, I love you. Now, you know, just yesterday we picked up the Lumbies at Heathrow. And I'm stirring my sugar into my coffee because they're late and that's an excuse to go get a coffee. So I'm just minding my business and I said something and the driver who's like, wakes up and starts laughing. And I talk with him a little bit more and I finally pull out my car and I say, have you ever read this in your life? And he reads it and he goes, no. And I tell him, you know what? This is the best news you'll ever hear in your whole life. God loves you. You need to know that. And he just looked at me. And the lady down the counter is looking at me. People are starving for the love of God and they don't even know it. They have an itch they cannot scratch. They don't know what to do. So, amazingly, Jesus says, I want you to do this. I'm sending you. And I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And I want you to love others around you even as I have loved you. And I want you to do this. This is the way that God lives. He lives thinking about others and benefiting them. That's who he is. And we get to represent God to people. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. You get to say, when you come to Jesus, when you trust in him alone that he died for your sins, your sins are forgiven you. And we also get to say, you know what, if you don't come to Jesus, your sins are still upon you. You are under the wrath of God. There is no hope for you. There's no future. But if you come to Jesus, you'll find out that he loves you. He is the only way that you can be saved. Now, this last part I think is really amazing. Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The, others, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, you gotta wonder, why wasn't Thomas there with the guys? Why wasn't he there? The other guys felt like we need to be together for this. You know, they weren't looking for Jesus to rise from the dead either, but they were together. But Thomas is processing this different from all the others. And did he give up? Did he say, well, I'm back on my own. I might as well get on my own. I don't know. But he wasn't there when Jesus showed himself alive. And you know, this put Thomas in the same position as anyone else outside the disciples. And I don't think it was good that he wasn't there. He had the same problems to face as the others but he faced them by himself alone. I don't think that's a good idea. And I know people that deal with their problems by staying away from church. I don't think that's a good idea. 
Now, the disciples don't want to leave Thomas out. That's understandable. Can you imagine? They've seen Jesus alive. They know it's real. All of it is true. They know that God loves them. Jesus breathed on them. They're doing what he told them to do. They could not leave Thomas out. So they're telling him, he's alive. We saw him, we saw him, we saw him. And Thomas evidently doesn't believe resurrection can happen or something. Like, what is his problem? He says, I don't believe it. I will not believe it. There's no proof that would make him believe outside of seeing it for himself and touching it for himself. And so Jesus has mercy on him and shows up. And at least he was there this time. But he says, don't be unbelieving. Be believing. What that means is he should have believed them. There's plenty of proof. Plenty of proof. Explain what happened to the disciples. This death of Jesus didn't happen 15 years ago. It happened three days ago, and they're all devastated. And yet, suddenly, all the disciples are going like this. And they're saying Jesus is alive. They all have the same testimony. And Thomas could have thought about this and considered it. Because what power in the world could have changed their minds? Are these guys liars? He's worked with them day in and day out in the good times, in the terrible times, for three years. He knows these guys. Now, what are they trying to do? Either they're completely insane or it's some kind of a deceptive, evil, wicked plot or they're telling the truth. It's not for lack of proof though. Thomas is refusing to think about it. He's refusing to consider it and that's why he's not believing. Have you ever run into people who are really smart and they say, I don't believe in Jesus because I'm intelligent. And they make that actually the, the reason why. I'm too smart for this. They're not too smart. It is, a, it is an act of will. It's, it's, I am not willing to do this. It doesn't have anything to do with intelligence or proof. There's plenty of proof. It is a matter of the will. So the amazing thing is that Jesus has mercy on Thomas. He says, I don't want you to be unbelieving. I want you to be believing. I want you to be open to this. And he does that for Thomas. And he says, blessed are those who believe and haven't seen. That's because they're thinking. There's a, a famous book written by A.E. Wilder Smith, and the title is, He Who Thinks Must Believe. 
so I just want to think about Easter this morning. That's what we've been doing. That's why we've been having fun. And the more we think about it, the more fun we're having because it really is fabulous. And I think the reason why we don't feel more Eastery is because we're not thinking about it. The most important thing you can do is to meditate in the Word of God so that everything you know about up here actually is written on your heart down here. And the reason why we struggle and we get tired and we don't feel like God loves us, we don't feel like telling people about Jesus, we can barely drag ourselves to church, is because we're not thinking. It doesn't have to do with another video or another book or more information. It is actually spending time with God and thinking about what he has said. All of those words are living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. These words burn like a fire. They break rock like a hammer. They are light in the dark. And if we're not thinking about these words, we will find ourselves running out of love. And because we're running out of love, we're unwilling. And so Jesus is really, really merciful to us. And he fixes things in place like church and Bible study and Easter and Christmas and these things so that we think about this stuff and we say, what do you know? This Easter, he wants us to be believing, not unbelieving. And he wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit. And he's able to make us willing. Did you know that? This is part of the gospel. In Philippians 2, Verse 12, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you can say, you know what, God? I, I'm not willing. I'm struggling with everything. I don't want to do this. I don't like that person over there. I don't like anything that's happening. And I want to quit. Now, you can make me willing. Would you please do that? It's not even 
oh, I'll make myself willing. You can't even do that. Why don't you ask God and say, here I am. If you want to make me willing, I'll do it. Let's pray. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you really did send Jesus for us because you love us and you raised him from the dead because you love us and you have removed our sins because you love us. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us today because you love us. And you will never, ever, 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 ever leave us or forsake us because you love us with everlasting love. And we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Breathe on us again. Like Paul prayed that we would know the length and the width and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which passes understanding that we might be filled up to the fullness of God. Would you do that for us? Draw us close to you and refresh our hearts. Thank you that we can draw near. Bless our fellowship together. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.